Here are some of the most popular ways that people think the world is going to end. An asteroid strike, nuclear or biological war, overpopulation, climate or ecosystem change, a pandemic of virus or disease around the world, supervolcanoes, an increased solar activity, black holes, the rise of artificial intelligence, or, wait for it, alien invasion. All, except maybe the last two, have at some time got people talking about their threat towards the existence of humanity. Global warming being a very contemporary example. People have this fascination with how the world is going to end. And it is portrayed often well in multi-million dollar disaster movies like The Day After Tomorrow or 2012. However, when you watch these films, apart from the untold devastation and destruction there is all around the world, there's also this wonderful story of the fight for human survival. Whether that be the world coming together to fight against the aliens in Independence Day, whether it is that single brave hero who sacrifices himself for humanity, like in Armageddon, or whether actually human survival is not here on this planet, but going somewhere else to find a better place, like in Interstellar. The message is that humans will win, at least survive. You never see a film where the total destruction and annihilation rule and win. Do you fear that one day the world will end? Do you ever believe that one day it might end? Perhaps your concerns are not necessarily for a global future, the end of the world, but maybe just for the concerns for your own life, the life of your friends and family and their future. Your thoughts are more about how the world, the end of the world might actually be a relief for you a relief from the difficult circumstances of everyday life. But what if there is an ending to the world? What if there is an ending to the world that no human can prevent and no human in their own effort can survive? It's very interesting as you look at these popular ways of how the world is going to end. They include artificial intelligence and alien invasion but they don't include the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that the world is going to end. It's going to end when the Lord Jesus returns. We've been thinking about that over the last couple of weeks here in Isaiah. And if you've been here the last two weeks, then you'll see that actually in Christ, there's nothing to fear about the end of the world. No matter how bad things get here, we know that in him, things will work out well. This morning we are in Isaiah 35. Isaiah is writing a few years after the reign of King Ahaz, which we we looked at last week. Now we are reading about his son, Hezekiah, or the time of his son. He is now on the throne. And Hezekiah, unlike his dad, was a pretty good king. But unfortunately, because of his dad, the kingdom of Assyria is right at the door, coming to attack Jerusalem. And Hezekiah has the same decision to make 
as his dad did. What is he, or was he going to trust in God, or was he going to trust in himself or other people? Was he going to give in to the pressure of this huge army that was coming to attack him? If you read the chapters leading up to chapter 35, um, we read a lot about God's sovereign control, his sovereign power over all the nations of the world. He is controlling even great nations like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, who's coming to attack. And we read lots of prophecies of God's judgment upon these nations. And if you read chapter 34, just before where we are today, it's a devastating chapter of great destruction and devastation for the whole world as God judges the nations. But then chapter 35, a chapter that speaks of life and a restoration for God's people, for those who have been saved. So for King Hezekiah, his immediate future looks bleak. He waits to see what is going to happen as he faces this onslaught from the Assyrians. But because Hezekiah has been listening to Isaiah, he's heard of God's promises, he trusts in God, and he actually finds freedom from the Assyrians. And you can read about that in chapters 36 to 39. There's some, some narrative there describing the events of history that happen with Hezekiah. So for us, as we, the world, face uncertain future, humanly speaking, as you as individuals face uncertain days, we can come and we can look at this chapter and we can find promises of life, of salvation, of restoration, as we wait for the salvation of God. We can wait for the Lord's coming. We can be strong and not fear, as he says in this chapter. We can rejoice and be glad. We can do that now, the sure hope of the future that God will bring to us. So what is that future? What can we be glad in? What can we rejoice in? Well, firstly, the renewal of the land. <clears throat> the renewal of the land. In chapter 34, we can have a quick scan of that. God pronounces great judgment upon the nations. He's angry with them. His wrath is for his enemies, verse 2. Isaiah describes judgment that's also upon the land. He talks about streams being dried up and the land being burned with fire. He says that from generation to generation, the land will be desolate and will be wasted. Wild animals will live there. It's just full of death. But as we read at the beginning of chapter 35, we see life coming. Let's read those verses again. Isaiah 35, verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and, the and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And he continues in verse 6. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. So Isaiah contrasts this reversal of death to life, deserts becoming pools, 
From wilderness will come blossoming flowers. As we look out the windows, as we look at our world, we see a mix, don't we? A mix of goodness in nature, but also of devastation. Places of great abounding fruit and greenery, others of just hostile and inhabitable. If you have been watching the news recently, you will know that global warming has been hot on the agenda. We've been learning about ice caps melting and sea levels rising. On the one hand, we have flooding that's destroying people's livelihood. On the other, drought that's preventing crops from growing. Coastal areas are disappearing and coral reefs are dying. Hundreds of people have been meeting in Paris these last few weeks at the UN's climate change conference. And last night, they struck a deal, planning to reduce their carbon emissions around the world. We've been hearing experts say that if we don't deal with this problem, then it's going to be disastrous for future generations. We've also been hearing some experts withdrawing from the conference, saying that they think this is far too, far too serious, and that humans have survived worse disasters in our world, and everything won't be too bad. I don't know what your view is on global warming. Whatever it will happen, whatever will happen in our world, however things may get, we know that it is messed up. And actually, our world has been messed up ever since Genesis chapter 3. Whatever we try and do to make it a safer and more fruitful place to live, it's never going to be perfect. God said to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3, they'd eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. The world is messed up. It's, it's under God's judgment because of his special creation, humanity, who have rebelled against him. And it's only going to get worse before it gets better. But yet from this chapter here in 35, we see that it will be better one day. Paul tells those in Rome, in Rome, Romans chapter 8, that the creation has been subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the one who has subjected it to. But yet creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be re- revealed. Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So friends, there's coming a day when the Lord returns that creation will be liberated. It will be restored. It will be new and new life will spring from it once again. And we see that here in chapter 35. Have a look at verse 2. We see some locations that will be familiar to to those who are reading it, are hearing it, the glory of Lebanon, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. We can picture Lebanon was famous for its mighty forests, for its mountainous regions. Carmel for the fruitful woodlands, Sharon for the fertile coastlands. All good, fruitful, fertile ground. 
glory and splendor given to it, magnificent, perfect in creation. And yet we read at the end of verse 2 that no matter how glorious, how splendorous these sights will be, the focus for those who will be there will be the glory of the Lord. Do you remember in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe? Everyone knows something is happening because the snow is melting and the ice is disappearing. Soon white is all gone and the fertile land is visible again. Blossom flows and life is glad. Animals are rejoicing, bouncing around. But the greatest sight is when they see Aslan. When he appears, everyone bows down in reverence before him. A day is coming when God will return and a new creation will come. But now, of course, we should be wise, we should be sensible with how we live and how we treat our world. We should protect it, we should not abuse nature, but neither should we elevate nature above what it is. This world will end and it will be changed gloriously. But for those who will be there, the greatest sight will be the glory of the Lord because he is coming. God will come and with him a renewal of the land. But also with him will come resurrection of the body. Isaiah goes on, verse 3, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. There are many in this world who would love to see with their eyes and to hear with their ears, to have their bodies being able to move and their mouths speak. These abilities, for most of us, we often take for granted and we don't really understand what it's like to be without them. Through medical research, many inventions have, have come about that help those who are disabled in many different ways. You can now get special ear, plants, ear, ear implants that help people to hear. And when you watch the reaction of those who hear often for the first time, it is incredible. There's shock, there's, a, there's stunness as they hear things. There's smiles and laughter. And then there are tears of great joy as they come to realize this wonderful gift of hearing, something that they've, they've missed out on in their life. Disabilities or illnesses that leave people in pain, in frustration, in suffering, affect many in our world, and of course affect many here at Modern Road Church. How do you deal with that? How do you respond to physical suffering as Christians? Well, for scientists, of course, the search for cures and solutions and aids for various people is a daily job. 
Medical advancements have cured many diseases, of course, and, but there are still many left. There are some who demand that we eradicate all disease. They believe that humanity can, can overcome all adversity. There are millionaires, there are CEOs of Google, PayPal, Facebook, who give millions of dollars to medical research. They believe that one day we can even reverse death. And yet, on the other hand, the only solution that some feel they have to bring peace will be death. Humanity in and of itself recognizes that suffering and illness and disease and disability just isn't natural. It doesn't feel right. And they try hard to overcome these things. Dealing with physical um, problems and suffering is a huge topic, and of course there are no easy answers. Even bringing God into the topic, it's still hard. But yet bringing God into the conversation is the only answer, is the only hope, the only hope there is for our bodies, because there is promise of resurrection, promise of new hope, because God is coming. Think of the Lord Jesus when he came the first time. And we look at his ministry. We look at the life that he led. John the Baptist once, knowing all the prophecies about the Messiah coming, knowing that part of his coming will be about judgment, yet he doesn't see Jesus doing that. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we wait for another? And Jesus tells John's disciples to go back to John and, and tell him these words. And he's quoting or at least alluding to Isaiah 35. And he says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus will indeed come a second time and he will judge the world. But at his first coming, he came to fulfill or at least give us a taster of what that final day will be like by healing, by raising the dead. And of course, the greatest evidence, the greatest encouragement and hope that we have is Jesus himself and his resurrection from the dead. He died, he rose from the dead conquering death. He has a new resurrected body. He has it still now in heaven. And one day he's coming back and he'll have a new resurrected body then and he'll have it for all eternity. And we too will have resurrected bodies. Glorious. So how do you respond to this hope? How do you respond especially if you have a broken body? Or we take confidence in these promises. <clears throat> I was chatting to my sister about these things yesterday. My sister has multiple sclerosis. It's not at an advanced stage yet, but one day it could be. And she was saying that verses like these in Isaiah 35 help her life, help her live in her failing body. The future hope gives purpose and meaning. It gives perspective to life. Because this life is not all that there is. There's something far better. 
In fact, this life is nothing compared to what that day will be like. The future hope gives peace and assurance. It helps me trust that God is in control. It lifts my eyes off myself unto him who is faithful, who does not change, and who will fulfill his promises. There will be renewal of the land. There will be resurrection of the body. And there will be restoration of God's people, a restoration of relationship with him. In the last few verses of chapter 35, we get, again get this picture of the city, a city that we saw back in Isaiah 2, if you were here, the city where God will rule. Well, here we see there is a highway that is described, a highway that leads to this city. Will there be a literal physical highway created in the countryside outside the city of God? Or does it have a more figurative meaning? Well, scholars debate and talk about these things. But I think for me, as far as I, I can see, it, it has a bit of both. There may well be a literal physical significance of this as well as a more spiritual one. There may well be a, a highway, a, a major road or two that leads from the countryside into the city of God. A way that leads to where he dwells, to the new Jerusalem that we read of in Revelation. A road that's free from trouble and danger, that's free from anybody using it that's not allowed to. A road that will only be found in the new creation. Many parts of the world, particularly in the Middle East, where Isaiah is writing from, to travel from one place to another is very difficult. And to have a nice big highway would be wonderful, would make the journey so much easier. I'm sure you know what it's like to drive around windy roads and dangerous drops, potholes, waterlogged drains. And you wish if only they'd built a motorway through here, it would be great. Sometimes I feel that traveling between North and South Wales but I like the mountains too much, so that wouldn't be a good thing. But that's what a highway does. It, it kind of takes away all the danger and all the difficulty. It's straight. And this highway is for the redeemed. It's for those whom God has rescued. It's a highway that's called the way of holiness. And only those who are holy can travel on it. Who are these holy people? Who are the redeemed? Well, they are those who have trusted in Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who has rescued people through his cross and resurrection. Because of Christ's holiness, we have been made holy. And we are worthy to walk on this highway. We are worthy because of him to walk to the city of God, to meet with him on that last day. But of course, when we think of Jesus, we think of the way, we think of a highway, we remember Jesus' words in John 14 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way to the new creation is, is only through Jesus. And again, it's only because God has come, because he has come, that we can come to him. But the path, is narrow and the gate is small 
None who are unclean spiritually will be there. None who are fools for not trusting in Christ, as Isaiah describes them. But this path, this highway, is only for those who have trusted in Christ. And for them, it is safe. It's secure. There's no danger. There's no wild animals. It's straight. It's simple. It leads right to the presence of God in Zion. Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Do you trust that he and he alone can solve the problems of our failing world, of our dying, failing bodies? And most importantly, he's the only one who can solve the problem of our broken relationship between us and God. Only in Jesus will this most precious relationship be restored. And what a restoration there will be and what great response there will be. Look at verse 10. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's great emotion, great experience meeting God. When we come back to Isaiah at the end of December after Christmas, we're going to spend all of our time in the city. But here we capture a glimpse of what it will be like. Singing, joy, gladness. Joy will be a crown. Gladness and joy will overtake us. It will be overwhelming. Because there will be completeness. Because there will be fulfillness. Because nothing can take it away. Nothing can dampen it. Nothing can steal it. A common battle we often face in this life is that even in our greatest moments, even in the most joyful experiences we have, it's tainted. It's tainted with, with something. When a child is born, when you get married, when your favorite team wins the World Cup, even the greatest joys are tainted with something. The rugby player Johnny Wilkinson famously said after winning the World Cup for his country in 2003, the problem with me is that I, I always think I should have done better. I felt that after winning the World Cup final. I felt it throughout my career. I was depressed in times of injury. When I retired, I felt I hadn't earned anything. And in his own words, he says, I, I was breaking apart. And yet he is one of the world's greatest rugby stars. And yet living in this world, having the greatest joys, it just doesn't satisfy. We live in a world that is falling apart. We try to make sense of it. We try to solve the problems. We try to bring cures. But nothing satisfies. We live with failing bodies. And yet there is great hope, great hope in the Lord Jesus. And so we can rejoice. We can be strong. We, can, we don't have to fear, as Isaiah calls, because there will be a renewal of the land, there will be a resurrection in our bodies, and there will be a restoration of our relationship with God fully and completely face-to-face. And so we marvel at new creation. We marvel at what we will have on that day. But most of all, we will marvel and we will have joy 
in the presence of our God.